Do you love racing? Then you've come to the right place. We discuss current topics in most asphalt series, as well as deep dives into the history of racing, race cars, and the drivers. I'm NASCAR driver Derek Cope. I share some of my personal stories, as well as highlighting those people that shaped my career and others. I'm Alicia Cope, and we also take on controversial and engaging topics on many subjects, including NASCAR, as well as tips and tricks that have worked for us in building teams from scratch, keeping relationships, and finding new roads. Hopefully our experiences will inspire you to reach your own goals. Let's get started. Welcome back to Race Theory. This is episode 26, and it is called Underdog Delivers at Daytona. So here we are. It's really the Super Bowl of NASCAR Winston, um, Winston, what racing, I guess. <laughs> I, I want to say Winston Cup racing. Going down memory lane there. not memory lane. So, but yeah, this is the start of the 36 weekends of racing uh, in NASCAR. So, you know, from where I look at it, my, my standpoint is this is when the season starts and a lot of exciting things can happen from here. And, you know, we'll get to discuss on a weekly basis what's happening in, in the sport of NASCAR and uh, a lot of these series uh, that accompany it, as well as um, you know the Trans Am series getting getting up uh, up next on deck, I guess uh, this coming weekend uh, in Sebring. So, but an exciting night tonight. Uh, in the in the end, first of all, I guess in the beginning it was, in my opinion, was a little bit subdued. The racing was a little anticlimactic early. Everybody side by side, but mindful of each other and, you know, some good racing and uh, a lot of lead changes, which is something that you don't really see a great deal of. But for some reason, I think this car has been, you know, very conducive to a lot of, you know, passing and lead changes. And it's and do much- you think that's because the cars are more, um, there's not as much disparity. They're, they're more competitive with each other. They're more the same. Correct. The, the cars themselves. They're symmetrical, you know, they're straight up and down. They don't, you know, there's not a lot of skew in the cars and the cars are basically, you know, the same for the most part. And then with minor nuances and changes and setups, but yeah, for the most part, you know, they are relatively close and the parity is there. So it leads uh, to a lot, a lot better racing, I think, uh, at Daytona because these cars do punch a big hole in the air. So when you get 40 cars out there, then the air is disturbed and then you have a lot of opportunities for passing and, and maneuvers to go on. So, uh, but it was, I think, again, they had like, I think 52 lead changes, which is the most in history for the Daytona 500, which is, which is a lot. And the longest race too, yeah. uh, with as far as laps go. Yeah, correct. I think uh, I remember how many laps, 532 miles or right. something like that. So, I mean, definitely was long, uh, extended the racing, you know, with the, uh, you know, with the uh, overtime periods, you know, I guess so. But it was really good racing there at the end, I felt, as far as competition was close. And again, you saw a lot of lead changes, but um, I I think uh, we definitely need to congratulate the winner um, because that is someone, uh, that is a team that we know, um, your cousin, Ernie Cope, congratulations to him who manages that team. Ricky Stenhouse Jr. is, um, a very nice young man and a very good speedway racer. And I love seeing an underdog team, a small team get the Super Bowl of NASCAR. It is just so sweet, so much, um, better of a victory. I think in my opinion, to see someone that no one picked, um, and no one thought, uh, could win. And, uh, and here he, he delivered it. You know, this is Ricky's 
third win. And he recently got married. And, you know, he's a he's a nice he's a nice guy, you know. And I think uh, the one thing that I, you know, am so happy about is that Tad and Jody Geschechter and Brad Doherty, uh, they got a win. And they're a single car team now. They were a multi-car yes. team, you know, two car team before. And, you know, with the changes they've had, then they've downsized and you know, their organization has downsized, uh, but, you know, they've maintained uh, their integrity with their sponsorships. That's something that Tad uh, has done, I think, the most proficiently of anyone in the sport over the longest period of time. And that is to, you know, have a great marketing platform and do great things for the consumer driven products that they put on the cars through the Kroger brands. And uh, it's, it's really good to see them finally get something of magnitude. And this is obviously the biggest thing that can happen. So it should uh, only do great things for the organization and their sponsorship and, uh, you know, raise the level of, uh, of excitement. And, you know, and like I said, you know, winning just helps every aspect of your organization. Well, especially winning this race will definitely elevate everything. And, and um, yeah, just congratulations to that organization. Very well done. Yeah. You know, we used to fly with them on victory when we were a Starcom and got to know all the guys and I'm, I'm, I'm really happy for, you know, for Mike Kelly, the crew chief. Uh, this was his first year uh, as a crew chief reuniting with Ricky when he was the crew chief uh, when he won the uh, Bush uh, or the Xfinity Series Championship, Bush, Bush Series Championship, whichever it was there. But, you know, they they have a good rapport with each other. They've got synergy. And I think they were very committed. You know, they you know, they put a lot of confidence in what Ricky's abilities are. And collectively, that team has uh, worked very diligently. And, you know, I. I got to give, you know, hats off to my cousin, Ernie, you know, Ernie, Ernie Cope has worked very hard at trying to provide, you know, the leadership and the things inside the company to stay up with the bigger teams, a small team, I guess it's kind of like the little, little engine that could, you know, I mean, they have you know, their own CFD modeling programs. They got their war rooms. They have all the things that the big teams do, but maybe on just a smaller scale a little bit, but they have implemented all the things necessary to compete week to week, uh, the most competitively possible. And then Tad does a great job, you know, providing the funding and, uh, and they've hired good people. They've, they they've have had good they people, have quality people. Yes. And, and they're very good people themselves. Um, very generous, um, both Tad and Jody. Yes. And so, yeah, I mean, just really excited and pleased for them to have something really good happen to that organization. And, uh, you know, they've, they really did have a, maybe an off year last year, I think, you know, from what they have typically had, there was a time that, you know, they were like vying for top fives and top tens consistently when they were really doing their own bodies and they had, they were leading in the downforce, uh, you know, chase. And then when, you know, they kind of cut back and changed some of the rules, they, you know, it kind of hurt them a little bit. But then when they went to this new car, it just seemed like last year, they didn't have a great deal of luck, a lot of misfortune, got off to a rough start, and it just kind of compounded. Mm -hmm. uh, and unfortunately, um, you know, they just never recovered. But obviously, they came back strong and to have what a way to start, start your year yeah it, it will definitely make your year it will start it off and and come what may from here on out you are starting at the top so um yeah just a a great way to end the daytona 500 so i just wanted to make sure that we mentioned that at the very beginning so that everyone who who tunes in if you don't tune into the very end we we want to talk about the cream that rose to the top here yeah plus you know they they're in the they're in the uh 
in the chase. Yeah. They yep. automatically uh, automatically in. in. Yep. So that takes an enormous amount of pressure off of, of Ricky uh, and the rest of the people there. And now they can play a lot looser. They can go for things. They can make different choices. They know they're in. You know, they can go and, and push the envelope to try to put another win together or a multiple model wins. So, yeah, just an exciting time for them. I know it's an organization. And uh, I'll look forward to seeing how they, uh, they do the next few races here and see what kind of momentum that creates for them. So, um, you know. Yeah, kudos to them. So, yep. So, what did you think um, about the? You talked about kind of being anticlimactic there at the beginning. So, what do you think changed that really kind of started shuffling drivers um, out with so many lead changes there, pretty much from the midpoint? Well, certainly, what I think, in my opinion, happens with a race like that is that you know it's it was very you know very careful, very calculated. People were not you know making a lot of you know unnecessary moves they were still working and trying to find what their cars wanted who they were compatible with and trying to see what kind of runs they could get for later in the in the day and there was a lot of i felt like it was a very calculated first half of the race you saw some some top drivers with top teams and top cars in the back very early on just kind of waiting to see what was going to happen well i think that we've always talked about that i think that there's always you know Three ways to skin the cat, right? I mean, that's such a terrible analogy, well, just, baby. Well, it's you know, basically your choices, <laughs> right? I mean, you either stay up front all day and stay out of harm's way, you know, you try to like find a place to hide in the middle and just hang out with some people you trust, a car that you know doesn't have a lot of excessive movement in it, looks stable, or a friend you know you feel comfortable with, or a group. And then there's the guys at the back that hang out at the back for a while and try to just log laps. And then you know, with the stage racing though. You have to try to mount points. Points are important. So, you know, it's sometimes it's kind of like a pick your poison, right? I mean, you really want the stage points. You got to stay up front, put yourself in harm's way and try to get those points. And, you know, if you're up there and you qualify up there or you finish in the 150s well and you start up there, you really need to stay up there and try and knock out some points if you can. But if you're mired and you're in a problem, you get hung out to dry and you fade towards the back, then you kind of relegate yourself and say, okay, look. Let's just get back here, hang out for a while, log laps, and stay out of harm's way. And I want to bring up that we did talk about this if listeners did not listen to last week's podcast, which I think was one of our very, very best. And I asked Eric a lot of questions about strategy for qualifying and in the race, the Daytona 500, specifically this particular race. And he said the worst place to be is in the middle. So we heard Tony Stewart say that, huh, you're seeing some of these you know, drivers way in the back. They don't want to be in the middle because that's a really risky place to be that you get wrecked out um, early. And then the other choice is to be up front. And he said, well, in my opinion, he says, I'd always like to be up front. But he says, I have heard people disagree that in the back is a safer place to be for maybe the first half of the race. He says, because you're just betting on the fact that you're going to have a lot of wrecks coming up. However, sometimes that doesn't happen. And the race goes green for a long time at the end, and then you're all the way in the back. You don't have enough time to get back up to the front. Um, and they do that because points are obviously even more important than the win because only one person is going to win, but the points are just so paramount. So it is, like you said, kind of a cat and mouse game. Where do you go to be the safest in terms of starting your year from a points standing situation? In the past, you had restrictor plate racing and they've had, you know, a number of different, you know, combinations of restrictor plates, tapered spacers, you name it. And before, you know, it was difficult to lay at the back because you really needed help. 
to somebody to push you. You always had to have a car behind you to stay in the draft. Sometimes, like, if you didn't have a good enough car and you knew it, you fought tooth and nail to have a couple of cars behind you. It was what all you could do. Every move was about making sure you kept people behind you. Well, I remember you saying... Um, even if people didn't want to use you, you would make them use you. Yeah, because they'll discard you. Because basically, when you have a very poor car uh, with a lot of drag in it, then you actually can hold, you're dragging them back. So, you know, they want to discard you, get rid of you, you know, and just, you know, try to try to get back up to the main pack. So back then, it was more important, you know, that, to maybe run in the middle or put yourself in more jeopardy because you really couldn't afford to lose the draft. With this new car, it seems like, obviously, we just alluded to the fact that the cars are relatively all the same to some degree and more so than what it used to be. And it's easier to stay in the draft if your car is relatively proficient, it's driving well, and you can hang at the back and stay in you know close proximity to the, to the cars up there without being right in the, in the fray. And as you can see, as the race progresses, you start getting into situations where, you know, the the level of intensity builds a little bit, you know, for like around this, anytime to the end of the stages, you could see the intensity build and people start rubbing each other. They start trying to bump draft for more. They keep trying to hook on and there's pushing and shoving and there's a lot of more like movement in the cars and they're three wide. And that just, you know, optically for a race car driver, because you really don't see very much as a race car driver when you're right behind cars. You really, only time you really can look way ahead is when you get a little bit turning in the corner and you're in the banking, you can see way ahead. That's when you're looking way ahead, looking at the gaps, trying to figure out, you know, the surge that you have at that point in time, you're listening to your spotters, you know, they're telling you how much of a gap you have, basically what kind of a surge and run is behind you, what kind of energy is building up behind you. All this information is coming to you, and you're trying to process all of it. Did you have a spotter at your Daytona 500 win? Uh, no, I don't think uh, I don't think we had spotters then. To be honest with you, yeah, I don't think you did. It was, I don't think the spotters actually came in to around 92 ish, maybe 92, 93. I think is when we had our first spotters. Uh, so we really didn't have that. You and what had, a game changer because then you probably are not as observant now as you used to have to be. Well, back then we didn't have this cocoon uh, a seat and all these things that were mandated that you had to have restraints you know the hans device you know that you didn't have the full face helmets you didn't have the the big deals holding your your head in there where you can't look to the left look to the right i mean you physically were looking around a lot you're looking to the side more you're looking to the you know the left side of your window more you could move your head around you could have your mirrors placed where you could look out of the corners and see the back more so you had to do all of this yourself but of course no great loss without or uh, kind of reverse, that was much more dangerous is what I'm trying to say. Well, certainly, it, because Caused you didn't a lot have of the safety. Yeah, you didn't have the safety aspects, right? There that, you know, would, would you know, ultimately, you know, especially back then, you know, they didn't have soft walls. We had concrete walls. So, you know, it was a different dynamic. There was, you know, a lot more, you know, inherent dangers back then. You didn't have all the safety devices. But, you know, the type of racing made was really about you having to manage all of this and take it all in on your own. So you were looking out of the rearview mirror more than you really looked out the front of the windshield. Yes, and you were looking to the side. So you were always trying to manage your gaps, manage where people were going. You're looking to block the runs, see when they're coming. So 
there was a, it was multifaceted. You, you had to really be on your game the whole race, right? <laughs> you got a gooseneck. And uh, yeah, so I mean, you know. It <laughs> you was, needed a goose. And I got a short <laughs> neck, so you know, you, you definitely had to, you had to work at it. But that was the difference then, right? And nowadays, and I think you probably, if you listen to the broadcast, you know, I, t- I think uh, Tony Stewart alluded to it uh, uh, to some degree, right? But you listen to the spotters. They're very, very important today because you can't see out of these cars very well. You know, there's a lot of blind spots in these cars. They got so much stuff and they got the headrest, cocoons, these seats. Uh, there's just no movement. You can't even move your head hardly at all. And you're just constantly looking ahead. But now they have this camera which is a nice little deal because it's right at the back of the roof and it, it gives you an actual rear view camera that steps out and you got a really good, clear, you know, look at what's going on behind you. And you can have it right there in front of you, uh, you know, wherever you want it visually. So it just, it just, you just see it automatically in your vision. And so, you know, they, they have that, but the spotter plays the most significant role because he is actually giving you input all the time about what the complexion looks like outside the car that you really don't have any view of especially way ahead of you yeah way ahead of you and way in back of you so you know he is basically trying to tell you and that's what i you know we say well i don't want nobody to talk to me well i liked somebody to talk to me all the time i would prefer to have me not say anything and me just take all the information they were giving me and i process it like they would say okay clear low if you want it clear high if you want it they're running up the middle they got a big run on the top you know and so but you don't like spotters that tell you what to do no. and that was another thing that we had a hard time when we first started with starcom racing is that we had spotters that wanted to tell our inexperienced drivers what to do and that becomes difficult because then they're training them, so to speak. Well, the problem with that becomes that by the time you say it, it's too late when you're in the car. Because what I would, when I could do, and I felt like was the best way to do it was to listen to what they would say. And by the time you get that information from them, you already have processed what they've said. And you know, by the time that that something is said and you see something in the mirror, you know how much time you have to make that move. And it comes down to a conscious decision by you whether you take it or not. But you're talking about milliseconds that all this transpires, right? And that's the unique thing about this is all your senses are heightened when you get into this, right? Your vision, you know, you're, you're going 200 miles an hour and you see things like slowed down. It's like very, very slow motion. You see it. It's not like zooming by and everything is processed slower. So when you're really comfortable in the car and you sit back in the seat, then it's easy to absorb all this, see it, process it, make good conscious decisions that are in split seconds. And when the spotters are giving you all this information and telling you this, you you build tendencies off of that. In the race, you start to see it, you know, maybe it's somebody new you're working with or somebody that you've had for a while, but you finally come to terms with how they're saying it, when they're saying it, and you know that you're making the right choice and you feel comfortable making a move instantaneously just by when they said it and how long you know you had before you could make that move and that's an intriguing part of restrictor plate racing and running on the speedways and the average person can't really understand you know what that's like but that's the most exciting and exhilarating thing is you know it's like a fast high speed chess match, right? You are making choices and counter choices and you know, you're making your mind up, you're changing things. And that's why I say you've got to drive these cars, these races with no preconceived notions. You drive it, you see it, you react. 
because it's happening so fast and it's going to change. And so, you know, that's the, that was what this race was about. And I think the intensity level, you could see it pick up right towards the latter stages of the, of the stages where you had to really, you know, start to figure out, you know, try to win the stage. The other times that it's really interesting for me, and I hope that maybe the viewers, you know, you know, that they're conveyed by the, you know, the commentators, like when you get close to the pit stops and you know that you're running out of fuel, you're getting low on fuel and you're running too wide, too abreast all the time, you have to find the bottom. And that's the peril you become at that point. If you're running the top and you're trying to pit with a group of cars, a lot of Chevrolets, Fords, Toyotas, or you just need to be getting down. Yeah. You just have to get, and you can't gas. get down. You're stuck. You got to find a way to the bottom. And it's always a time that is a little bit intense for drivers when you start getting close to that, to that period. And you saw it today. And then that's when things happen. And as you saw today, when it came down for all the, for the pit stops, that's when things get skewed mm -hmm. because everybody's trying to pit, they pit together, they lock a wheel up, they spin out, you know, uh, and then all they of a miss sudden their box. they miss their box or whatever, or they get, and you know, it's just, there's so many elements and variables that are, you know, evolving around the pit stops and then your selection of when you do it and who you come in with or who you don't come in with, how many cars you're left with, how many cars you don't, you know, by missing your, your chance to get in, then you get stuck with another group of cars and you maybe don't have that, that energy built up because you've diminished down to four cars or five cars because you missed your opportunity and you could have come in with eight. So that's the, that's the strategy side of those things happening. And that's when the intensity picks up. And then after the actual pit stop, now it's back down to trying to figure out, you deal with what you were dealt, whatever mistake you made, whatever transpired, you know, some guys, oh, it sped down pit road and they had mm -hmm. to come back in and much to the dismay of, you know, Kyle Bush and, he got and right Stenhouse back up there. and Stenhouse who right. ultimately wins the race makes a mistake and speeds leaving pit road and still comes back and out of comes it. back from it yeah, and wins the race. So, you know, again, it's never over till it's over. And I think that's the fact that if you just really have to stay within yourselves when you make a mistake, fight back, because when a caution comes out, you get your lap back. Well, and I think that's only at a place like Daytona 500 or maybe Talladega where you could do that because at an intermediate track where you have really long greens, if you were to make a mistake on pit road and then you had to come back and serve a penalty, your day is done. The, I mean, for the most part. Well, unless you're a fast race car. Because right. If, you, if you're able to go back out and you can stay on that particular lap and you are the fastest car at that point, and the caution comes out, then you get your lap back. So it is feasible, but if you're a middle of the pack to the latter pack of the car, the likelihood of that happening is out the window. So, but if there's a lot of cautions, the opportunity does present itself. So, so let me ask you this. Um, so there's a lot of, um, you know, uh, opinions about the choose rule. So the choose rule is not very old. It was implemented, what, three years ago? Actually, uh, the choose rule, I think was 2020. Yeah. Okay. So three years ago. Few, yeah. Cause it was, um, yeah. Right. Right before. Um, yeah. So the choose rule for it or against it? Well, for me, you know, I've always been a traditionalist. I kind of liked racing the way it was. So all these little gimmicks and all these things for me, you know, I can take it or leave it. 
the way I've always looked at it was they present you with the rules and I deal with them. So I don't really, you know, in this day and age now, when I have a voice or I'm just saying, okay, do I like this or do I not like this? You know, it's just, for me, I think it opens up opportunities for multi-card teams or partners or groups like that to manipulate races. And they say, this is, you know, we're not supposed to manipulate the races. Right. And we're, and again, we do have a, people can gamble and bet on these races. So in my opinion, I think it does a disservice to the fact that you kind of, you know, add to the fact that you can manipulate the deal because you have, and the more partners you have or whatever, you know, if you've got multi-car teams and your guys happen to all be up there, there's an, a distinct advantage Bingo. to that. And that's why I don't like it yeah. because I think it does change the history of the, of the race. Um, and I think it gives those bigger teams even more of an advantage, which is unfair because the small teams or the one car teams especially are already at a disadvantage. And two, it, it kind of takes the fun out of it. I mean, I'm not a driver, but from an, you know, just looking at it as a spectator, it's one of those things that those drivers didn't get the opportunity to do, make the decision spur of the moment, to make the decision as it happened, you know, after the restart started. They made it beforehand and they pretty much were ordered, you know, like you always like to say, you know, the team orders, you know, the crew chief or the strategist or, you know, these big teams, they have, you know, the, the war rooms that are not even on site, you know, they've got their engineers sitting in a, a room somewhere in Charlotte looking at this race. Well, they've decided what you're going to do. And that's ultimately taken the decision out of the driver's hand. So, I mean, in my opinion, I think it is just one of those rules that, had, you know, definitely changes the complexion of the race and ultimately who wins. Well, I, when you, you said it was a lot of fun, I th I'm not sure that Kyle Bush thought it was a lot of fun when he's leading the race <laughs> and then he has to come down and make a choose rule. Right. But the good thing was he did have Austin Dillon behind him. Right. And I think when you, you looked at what happened there, you know, he took the tie high side and, you know, Austin took the bottom side, hoping the fact that, you know, when they took off that Kyle would certainly get the jump and that he could maybe get down in front of Austin and then they would physically control the race, lead the high side, you know, on its own. And that looked like a brilliant move. But what happens sometimes in that situation is that if the bottom line doesn't get, get going very well, and maybe Austin has to slow down a little bit to get Kyle, maybe Kyle doesn't get the great start. He has to slow down or back that lower line up to get him down in front of them, then the the top gets a run and they get, they get, you know, a lot bigger, you know, run to try to make a run at the top and get momentum going. And then the slow, the bot, the low lines bogged down. So there are pluses and minuses to every decision you make, you know, there's variables in every decision. Certainly. So, you know. Well, and what's interesting too, that you say that because when that happened and I was like, oh yeah, now, you know, he, he, he got a great lead and you said, no, that's not a good thing because now the top line is going to move and whoever has the surge is going to lead, is going to, um, overtake the leader because at a speedway, what we oftentimes forget is the lead really doesn't mean anything. It's all of those cars behind you that have the momentum. Because if you're by yourself, if you're the lone wolf, even though you're in the front, that uh, that will change quickly if you've got cars that are lined up behind you. Well, in that particular instance, if you viewed the race, you saw that when you get a little too far out, as did Kyle Busch, that they leave a gap. Well, then basically everybody else is putting a run at you and they're building momentum and then they're going to drive up to you and then they're going to move, make a move, you know, a counterproductive move 
and go by you. And that's the tough part. A lot of times you just have to drag the brake. You have to control the gap between you and that other car because when they're close to you, then you actually are getting more effect off of the bubble and or the push of the air behind you to you know help you know catapult you towards the front. And that's the thing that happens when you see the gaps, because when a big group of cars come and they bump you, they're, they're penetrating that bubble and that spring effect, right? That actually puts, and when you hit you, that knocks you forward, but knocks you back. And so, you know, there's a, it's like you say, it's just like a big slinky, you know I mean? You know, we just, oh, and then all of a sudden, you know, he comes back to you. <laughs> slinky, you know that's I mean? a good analogy. So, you know, it's, it really is, um, you know a very different dynamic, you know, when you're out there and trying to manage the gaps, listen to the spotters, you know, trying to drag the brake to make sure that you don't get too far out. But, you know, the tendency is, you know, you see the guys on the outside getting a run and you fall back and then, you know, you, it really is a deal of patience. You really have to stay within yourself, stay within the sense of what the car is giving you. You sense what the motor's got and you, you can kind of sense the momentum. You can kind of sense where the air is on the car. You know, all these things you're processing all this and you're making, you know, just quick decisions and thoughts about it all the time. And as the race unfolds from the beginning through the middle towards the end, you're just compiling all this data and you're building tendencies on how your car reacts in all these certain instances. And that's the part that I always enjoyed about it was because you would find guys later on that you worked well with your car felt really good around and, you know, and would, they would work with you. And then you felt like that you had, you know, at least, you know, something that you could use later on, you know, if that guy was able to stay with you and it was a good, a good situation. And so, you know, that, that's just, that's the part of it you enjoy. Right. Well, and, and I guess that's where I'm coming from is there are some things that you enjoy and then other things that are implemented upon you that takes the decision out of your hand, you know, like the choose rule. And then uh, segueing into what we were just talking about, um, working and having guys that work with you, because even, you know, Tony Stewart said, you know, they, they might work with you out in the parking lot, but they're not working with you once you get onto the track, which is totally what I've always said. What last week's podcast was all about is their teammates in NASCAR, in my opinion, no. Um, but Austin and Kyle Busch were working very well together, Austin Dillon. And then you had that last wreck. I don't, I can't even remember what caused that last restart. And Kyle Busch was going to win that race. Now I'm no Kyle Busch fan, but he has got to be just gnashing his teeth when that came out because he was definitely poised to win, had made the right moves to win. They had worked together. And then, whoa, all of a sudden it's, it's not going to be. Well, I think there was a lot of thought, you know, what, you know, did he take a step back leaving Gibbs and coming to Childress? But I think you know, you saw what he did at the call of Sam, and then you saw how they ran collectively here today. They've always had really good restrictor plate races. I mean, just like Austin Hill winning the, the race for RCR or the Xfinity series, right? They run good at the speedways. They got a good program. They work hard at it. And, you know, Kyle, I, you know, I felt like that he would have a shot. I mean, he was poised to win the 150 there and got wrecked uh, by Suarez. So, I mean, he had a fast car and came back with a backup car to do the same thing. And Austin did a really nice job. He was there helping and working as a team, good teammate. So I think it's a good positive reflection on RCR right now that uh, they're in a good position to move forward. Didn't get the finishes that they probably deserved. Uh, but, you know, that's, that's racing. Right? But my question is, the the restarts um, at the end. Um, you heard him over the radio say, "Hey, if this would have been 1998, I would be the winner." So 
how do you feel about now this um, situation has been going on for even less or longer? You mean the, the green, the green white checkers, right? Overtime the overtime. When did overtime get instigated? You know, I think the actual time that they implemented and called it overtime was like 2016 or so. But it kind of like they had had some different things going on prior to that with overtimes, I think, and whatever. But they actually adopted it, I think, around that time. Yeah. So know. right before we went into the Cup Series full time with Starcom Racing. Yeah. So because I remember we had the green white checkers in the overtime at that point. So really, is that, I mean, I guess you could look at it both ways because you could actually end a race on caution, which I don't think is fair either. So like, say you're at, um, you know, lap, uh, was it 198? There's 200 laps, the Daytona 500, right? So you're at lap 198 and a, a wreck happens behind you and, but you were in the lead. If you just stay out on the track, you know, just running around there for two more laps, you are the winner, correct? Well, yeah, yeah, back then when the caution come out, it stopped where your position was at. So basically by the, you know, by the, that's how it, how it worked. So, and so if you, if you, it could have been five laps before the end and if the caution come out and the wreck couldn't be cleaned up or whatever, and you had to ride around under caution for four to five laps, you would win the race. So that's why I think they implemented this type of a green white checker, because it gave you an opportunity to say, look, you know, just because they can't get the wreck cleaned up, you know, and that's they, not, these are massive wrecks, right? right? They take a lot of time to, to, to clean all this stuff out. So this would give you an opportunity to say, okay, look, we're going to go down no matter what, how long it takes to clean us up. We're going to have a green white checker finish so that it gives everybody a chance to go back and try to win. Well, and don't you think that was for the fans as well? Because it was, absolutely. It, I mean, talk about anticlimactic. If you're literally running around for five laps and the race ends, I mean, I know that's happened with um, the Trans Am races. Yeah. Uh, and we were both on the winning end and the not winning end of that, where a lap literally gets called. Well, they go by a time. They go by a, a timed race. Right. So they yeah. can they shorten the race just because of the time you know, well, um, element. Right. And the person who's in second or third says, this is not fair. I did not get a chance to race until the very end. The person who's in the front says, this is fair because when the caution came out, I was in the front. Well, I think everything that they, NASCAR does, you know, it really is trying to create excitement, trying to create more, you know, a better optically, you know, exciting thing view for the for the fans themselves and for television so that's what they're trying to do they're just trying to make it you know where it's it's great for the fans they leave there with a excitement a story and you know everybody gets a fair shot to win the race and i think that's what all these things were implemented for and you know what you're always going to have complaints i don't care what it is somebody's going to complain about the winner because their guy didn't win they're going to complain <laughs> about the guy that wrecked the guy because that was not their guy that they wanted to win. So you're always going to have that. And social media makes it even worse. They all got a voice, right? And I mean, that's just yeah, the here nature you are, of this beast. We're congratulating Ricky Stenhouse Jr. <laughs> and JTG. And everyone's like, that's not fair. That shouldn't have ended that way. And you're like, shouldn't have ended what way? You know, well, know. it's it really, I see both sides. Now, the choose rule, I don't like it. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of things I don't like. <laughs> yeah. I, make, I make no bones about it. We know but, that. But there, but there's a lot of things I do like too. Um, but there's some things I think, you know, there's a catch 22 to both of them. I can see both the glass half full and half empty on this um, green, white checkered overtime thing, because I don't think it would have been fair to allow people to win when they're just riding around. And I also don't think, you know, I, I mean, again, I'm not a, a Kyle Bush fan, but I could definitely see where he would feel that that just was not fair. <laughs> well, if you can't tell by now, my wife is very opinionated. Uh, <laughs> she is going to tell it like it is. She doesn't care. And, you know, if you don't like it, tough, uh, you know, and, you know, 
So I guess that's just, uh, you know. Oh, and you're not? Well, you know, yeah, I, maybe maybe more nowadays, the more older, the older I get, I guess the more so I am about not really caring too much, right? Well, and yeah. I remember too, when we were in NASCAR, you did not voice your opinion. And, you know, I did. I did use my voice and said, this is not fair, or I don't agree with this. You had to be silent at times, especially when you're a driver, when you're a driver owner, because you don't want the retribution on you. So I can definitely see where you're coming from. But, you know, I think right is right and wrong is wrong. And there definitely are some gray areas. But I would definitely welcome the feedback from listeners as to what you feel about the choose rule, what you feel about the green-white checker over time. And, um, you know, anything else that has been implemented, you know, just in the last couple of years, how it has changed racing from then to now is always a good conversation. But anyways, you know, as, as we talked about the race really did amp up towards the end, the intensity level, uh, you know, there was some, some wrecks, people were starting to make some maneuvers, you know, of course the couple of the, one of the wrecks there happened because of all the stacking up from the pit stop, you know, where you have slower cars stay out and fast cars come in. And so you have all that little juking and jiving going on and some things happen, but it really just kind of closed things up and the intensity level got going. And then it was, you know, it got, as it always does, it's time. And <laughs> it's time to go, you know, get it done. And then everybody, you know, their frustration levels, uh, you know, come out, uh, you know, the hair stands up on their head and, uh, you know, they get bug eyed and away they go. And, uh, you know, you start, you start getting way more about taking than giving at that point. And, uh, you're more reluctant and you get, and you get a little more pissy, you know? Well, and that is the Daytona 500 and that is restrictor plate racing. That's the excitement of it. That's why people love watching these races above all others. And especially this one is because you never know what's going to happen and come towards the end of this thing. I mean, like I was just screaming, I can't believe this. You know, Ricky Stenhouse Jr. is going to win the Daytona 500. I mean, the, the most unexpected things can happen. Well, you, you really look at the race. I mean, we're not talking, you know, maybe 10, 10, 20 laps before that, maybe 15. I mean, you had Chris Busher and mm -hmm. uh, Keselowski. I mean, they were in a position and really had and they were the strongest, the strongest really probably all day. cars right. all day to really uh, have a shot to win this thing. And the pit stop th things, you know, that really kind of like really changed things up. And then the Chevrolet's got in a mix up there, and you know, it changed the whole complexion of the race. So that's the one thing about this is you never know what's going to happen because there's just too many variables and you know you just that's the part that i think you know you get excited about because you know you all of a sudden you when you think it's just about going to happen like for kyle bush you just really think at that point in time this this they got he has they have a legitimate shot to make this happen right how many times has he i think he's gone 18 times without mm -hmm. winning this right now this right. is 19 i think right. And you're thinking, you know, he's done about everything else there is, and this is his shot, kind of like Earnhardt, right? He was like, mm -hmm. this is just, maybe this is going to happen. And then what happens, right? There's a wreck. And it's like, oh, that, I mean, the air just comes out of your sail. I mean, and he just had to be like, you know, livid, right? And, you know, and you can feel for him, you know, because you've been in those situations when, you know, you don't need that caution. You don't need that to happen. You have this thing in your grasp, and yet you don't. <laughs> And that's the frustrating part about this, you know? So yeah, he, I'm, I can tell you his flight home, I'm sure he is just completely, you know, despondent about what transpired. He had it in his hands and as fate has it, right? I mean, it's just never over 
Till it's over. Till it's over. Yeah. Well, and just like you always say too, like, I don't know, I was getting upset with something that had happened. Someone had made a mistake and they went, you know, they started dropping like a rock and you said, baby, there is a lot of racing left. And I mean, there is so much that can happen just within two laps, let alone 40. So, you know, just, uh, you know, just when you think that something's going to happen, just wait, it'll change. Yeah. And again, no one's immune to making a mistake. I mean, Harvick was up there in the fray, had a shot and he, he got out of line to make a move. He thought somebody was going to go with him. I think it was Cindric and Cindric didn't go with him and he dropped like a rock. Then was and, and it really ended his effort because he made a move really early thinking somebody was going to go with him and they didn't. So that's the thing about, you know, you know, the race, you just never know what the mindset is of the guy behind you. Is he going to help you? Is he not going to help you? And that, and that's really what is indicative of what happens late in these races to where the luck factor is what either helps you win the race or doesn't you got a lot like Chris, Christopher Bell, who's right there and he's pushing Stenhouse. They've run midgets together. They, you know, and they're happy for generally happy for each other. Right. right? That was sweet. And that's a, that's a, that's guys that have a bit of a relationship, right. You know, and that's what you need. You need that guy behind you. That's supportive. And, you know, Fortunately for him, it was the right time, right place. And he made the right moves. He made a really good move earlier to get to the front. And then, you know, that restart managed it and controlled it and, uh, and good for them. Uh, it was just, uh, you know, you like to have a feel good story. It was, I was going to say it was a feel good Daytona 500. Good it's been story. a long time since it's just been a feel good. Yeah. Um, it's been just kind of like, eh, well, another one, one, um, like a Trevor Bain type. Yes. Know. It was a Trevor Bain type. Trevor Bain, you, yeah. It's yeah. just like, you know, here it is, right. It's a, it's a new guy. I mean, there was only, what, there's only been 41 of us that have won the Daytona 500 to now this 42. And you think about that. That's yes. not a lot of guys no, that really have. It's not. You know, yeah. I was taking a look at that. I was coming up with the odds. I think it was, uh, one of our daughters that um, said the odds of winning the lottery are better than a race car driver. And this is someone who's actually chosen race car driving as a profession to win the Daytona 500. That's how small of a percentage it is that's going to do it. So, um, and, um, you know, kudos to you and to Ricky Stenhouse Jr. for for doing that. But yes, it definitely was a feel-good moment. And uh, I really, really enjoyed this Daytona 500. I hope you all did as well. Yeah. Well, like I said, this is, uh, it's nice to have, I know what it, is, it means and I know what he's going to go through here for the next week or so. And he's going to always have the Daytona 500 champion affixed to his name. So uh, congratulations to Ricky Stenhouse and his wife and uh, the whole JTG organization. And uh you know, we'll just give you the rundown here, a quick rundown of what, uh, you know, the finishing order was. But yes, Ricky Stenhouse Jr. wins the Daytona 500. Joey Logano, a gallant effort in a car maybe that just was ill handling. Really didn't, not really the car he was really, you know, typically going to have. But, you know, he legs it out to second. And then Christopher Bell was third. Uh, Chris Buescher fourth. And uh, and uh, Bowman was uh, was fifth, around out the top five. And you got to give a shout out, uh, you know, to... Um, uh, you know, AJ Allmendinger with Colic Racing was sixth, and uh, hey, Riley Herbst was tenth after uh, some struggles there, spinning out, uh, you know, on pit road there, you know, trying to get to pit road, and then Travis Pristana. Pristana, he, uh, yeah, he who, who would have thought that Pristana would have finished eleventh? I mean, I and he's he's as giddy as a schoolboy tonight. I can imagine yeah. the feelings that are. I mean, he's he is really a nice guy. We've had a chance to to see him at. Um, events because one of our drivers with nitro actually is pretty good friends with him and actually they were at the daytona yeah, 500 yeah, you yeah. know she was texting Beth, me ben, saying and, yeah yeah so it's great to see a, a guy that i mean 
who is so well-rounded in every type of motorsport known to man. A phenom. This yeah. guy is the X game. I mean, you know, just the, the, I mean, embodies the guy that, you know, is going to be able to do and try anything and is proficient in most everything he does, but to see the enthusiasm, excitement, and, you know, all of those things, I mean, it embodies what getting opportunity to run your Daytona 500, you know, and do what he's done, even at the career he's had, you know, it was great to see. And I was really happy to see him have that kind of a finish there. Did a good job staying out of trouble and then raced at the end and got a shot. And, uh, and then, you know, um, a great ending for him. And then, uh, Harvick was 12. So that gives you a bit of an idea of where things were at and, uh, a good day for the Daytona 500. And you know what, uh, I guess onward and upward we go. Yes. So like you said, beginning of the race season and um, here we go. So we're going to have a lot to talk about in um, weeks coming, but also wanted to let you know that I don't think anyone, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, in our contest picked Ricky Stenhouse Jr. to be the winner. If someone did, um, just screenshot me that um, in our social media, wherever that was, because we did have a prize for that. And then also thank you to all of of those of you who signed up for the Derek Cope Club. I am mailing out all of your um, initial collectibles for that. And I actually am putting in a couple extras. So those um, like first dozen that signed up for the Derek Cope Club, you are getting a little extra. Um, and then we are continuing with um, the ebook. And those of you who have not ordered the chapter one yet or the Derek Cope Club, um, please do that and give us your feedback. We've only gotten a couple uh, reviews on the book. We'd love to get more as to um, how you felt, how that first chapter went. And of course, it was a little bit more personal. Derek definitely did more of um, a few stories about his mom, felt that that was very appropriate. But as the book continues, it'll definitely get more racing technical. But again, thank you all for listening. We appreciate it and have a great rest of your week. Yeah. And I'm off to Sebring this week for the TA2 race Trans Am and look forward to speaking with you about those uh, next time. All right. All right. Good night, y'all. Thank you so much for listening. Did this episode give you some value? If so, please follow us on Facebook at Derek Cope and Instagram at Derek Cope double zero and leave a comment or question and use hashtag race theory. We can't wait to hear from you. See you on the next episode.